Sunday, we are beginning a series of mini-series. And what I mean by that is that we are going to, the overarching series is called Story, Narratives That Change Lives. And we're going to be looking at Old Testament folks throughout this time of, of about 20, 20 some odd weeks of unpacking different lives and the lessons that we can learn from their lives. And we're going to begin with a mini-series on the life of Joseph, as you saw from the video. One of the things that I really, truly, and fully believe is that lives tell stories. Your life is telling a story. As we look at Scripture, their lives are telling stories. And those stories have lessons for you and for me. When you look at the story of your life, how do you want to be remembered? When you think about your headstone at the end of your life, what do you want your epitaph to say? And my hope is that at the end of my life, people will say, Marvin loved Jesus. He loved his wife, he loved his kids, and he loved the bride of Christ, the church. That's all that I want my story to be about, is the love of Christ for Jesus, my family, and for the church, as well as the world as he shared the love of Christ with those who did not know Christ. That is what I want my tombstone to say, the lesson of my life being one of love. But in order to do that, we have to surrender to the Holy Spirit. We have to recognize that our lives are telling stories as we are out in the public or as we are in private with our kids. What stories are our lives telling? Every story has a lesson. But the problem is when we look at the Scripture, too often when we see narratives of someone like Joseph or Moses or Joshua, we can go back to our Sunday school mentality and just say, oh, that was a really good story. But these stories happened in real time. These stories happened in real life. They're not just Sunday school, feel-good type of stories. These are real lives that have real lessons for you and for me. Every life tells a story, and every story offers life lessons. Every story offers life lessons. And that is the overarching ideal that we will look at as we unpack the lives of each of these people in the Old Testament. As we come and look at their life, we're going to ask the question, what can I learn from their life, from their failures and from their successes? And not just what can I learn in my head, but what can I apply to my life? How can these lives, these narratives change my life? Because all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is able to rebuke and to teach and to grow us as believers. The, the narratives of the Old Testament are no different. We begin with Joseph. And we see that his life was one of deep interest. His family, we will note, was a very toxic environment. Joseph himself was not perfect at all. In fact, the very beginning of his story, we see some pitfalls that Joseph fell into that you and I can avoid. And so the question as we approach the beginning of this series and the beginning of this mini-series of Joseph's life is how can we avoid the pitfalls of Joseph's youth? How can we avoid the pitfalls of Joseph's youth? 
Now, if we go back a little bit in the book of Genesis, we know that God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many generations, that he would be the father of the nation that will be God's chosen people, that he will be a father of people who will inherit the land that he has promised to them. This is where the Sunday school song does get it right. Father Abraham, excuse me, Father Abraham had many sons, right? I lost my breath there for a second. I don't know what happened. Sorry. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. We see that this transpired in Isaac, that Isaac was the son of promise, and he brought forth other children, that he had Esau and Jacob, and Jacob had many sons. He had many wives, but he also had many sons. And we see throughout this story that there is a, a core line that we will unpack when it comes to the idea of favorites. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But as we look at this story of Joseph, he is the epitome of the promise that this is now coming true, that the promise with which God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is coming true in their lives. But I believe that, again, this narrative of Joseph shows us how we can avoid certain pitfalls that Joseph found himself falling into. And I think the first avoidance that we can add to our lives is the avoidance of resistance. What do I mean by that? We need to resist the temptation to defame others. Resist the temptation to defame others. Let's read verses 1 through 2 really quickly of this narrative. Opening up in Genesis 37, verses 1 through 2, states this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Wow. This is an interesting portion of Joseph's life. The very beginning of Joseph's narrative, it paints him in a bad light. If you were to really understand what this passage is saying, it's that Joseph began as a 17-year-old tattletale. He was telling on his brothers. He was going to his dad and he was saying, you won't believe what the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah were doing. And he comes to his father and tells this report. The word report in Hebrew is actually deba, And it means slander, rumor, defamation, and whispering. So he would come to his father and he would purposefully defame his brothers. He would go to his dad, Jacob, and whisper into his ear saying, These guys are so bad. I don't know if they're actually your sons. And he would say all of these things, defaming them and telling bad rumors about them. He did not resist the temptation to defame others. One commentator says this, This incident suggests that Joseph continually influenced his father's attitude negatively toward his brothers. This just, wasn't just a one-and-done incident. This was Joseph's life, continually tattletaling on his brothers. Now, no one likes a tattletale brother. Right? It kind of gets annoying, especially if it's day after day, every single time. Ugh, 
We messed up in front of Joseph. I'm sure dad's going to hear about it. Right? And so they would try to avoid Joseph. They would try to step back. And we'll see in a moment that Joseph was the favorite child. And he was probably terrified of losing his place of status in his father's heart. And so he would bring these bad reports to his dad because he didn't want to lose his status. Once you have status, it's hard to not want to hold on to it and to keep it. This was something that was going on in his life. The household with which Joseph found himself in, Jacob's house, was a very toxic place to live. It wasn't like a really happy, clappy family. It wasn't like they were getting together and having a great time, you know, as brothers wrestle and they might noogie one another and they might just hang out and kick back and relax and, man, I love you, brother. I just, I just, I'm so glad I'm with you. No, this was a, a competitive, fearful, rivalrous type of family. And his tattletaling increased that aspect tenfold. Why do I share that? Well, we as believers need to not defame other people. This is a lesson from Joseph's life that you and I can immediately apply because believers are to speak well of others always. The scripture is very clear. We won't read them today, but I encourage you to take these passages home and study them. James 4.11, Titus 3.2, Ephesians 4.29-31, and it can continue on and on and on that believers are to speak well of others Always. It's not just there to speak well of others. It is a consistent thing that you and I are to attach to our lives. But how tempting and how often do we find ourselves defaming other people to other people? Now, there are certain things that you need to report there are certain conversations that you need to have. There is an aspect in Matthew 18 where someone, if they are not repentant, you need to bring someone else along. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the constant go- gossip and slander that happens in our lives. Where we see someone who might be struggling with sin, and rather than walking alongside of them and lovingly helping them out of that or encouraging them to walk with the Lord again, we call our friend on the phone and say, You won't believe what Tim is doing. What? Yeah, yeah, let's let's tell everybody. He's he's in a lot of trouble. Right? Rather than calling Tim and saying, Hey brother, I really love you. I notice this is happening. How can we walk alongside? How can I walk alongside you? This is a totally different aspect. That's not at all what Joseph did. Joseph's purposefully in this story defaming his brothers. What a way to start a narrative. How about you're Joseph and you read that? Oh man, I'm so embarrassed by that story. But it's in there because it's true. It's in there because it's important for us to grasp. Joseph's slander created a toxic environment. But Jacob allowed it to happen. Jacob allowed this type of thing to transpire in his home. And so we can see, not just from Joseph's story, some lessons, but Jacob's story, some lessons. And the pitfall that we need to not step into in this aspect is the pitfall of favoritism. We need to kill the culture of favoritism. We need to kill the culture of favoritism. Starting in verse 3 from Genesis 37, 
It says this, Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now in Romans 2.11, which is not put up there, but Romans 2.11 says, God does not show favoritism. It is not something that our father does. But in this story, we see Jacob creating a culture of favoritism where he was encouraging, many commentators would say, that he was actually asking Joseph to tattle. Now, Joseph obeyed that and did it. He willingly and probably gleefully was telling these bad reports and these slanderous things. But many commentators believe that, that he tapped Joseph on the shoulder specifically to go and, and report on his brothers. Now, we could see in the story of Jacob there was reasons to distrust his children. They did some bananas and crazy things before this passage. I mean, I'm not going to get into it because it's a little bit graphic, but you should go back and read what his sons were doing. And so it would make a little bit of sense that, that Jacob is like, hey, just make sure that your brothers aren't killing anybody anymore. Just make sure that they're not letting their sister get beat up anymore. All right, just check up on them. But what ended up happening was he created a culture of favoritism where he was like wow joseph is my only good child he's the only good one in my house look at these kids are a mess how are they even my children but joseph oh joseph i love you oh joseph you're amazing oh joseph i just need to give you a jacket to show how much i love you this special jacket hundreds of dollars i'm gonna pour into you and show you how much i love you but his brothers are not stupid they're recognizing what's going on. They're realizing that Joseph is dad's favorite. There's a culture of favoritism. Now, if you were to unpack the story of Jacob's life, in Isaac's life, and in Abraham's life, the way they parented, Abraham had a favorite, which was Isaac. And Isaac had a favorite, which was Esau. And Jacob had a favorite wife where he was willing to wait 14 years to marry this woman because he was tricked by his, his uncle by marrying Leah. He went into the tent and found out that, oh, I just married Leah on accident. i got to work another seven years. I don't know how that's an I just I just don't know how that happened. Let's just say some things in Scripture you're like, are you dumb? But anyways, he lost it. He waited seven years for Rachel, and Joseph is Rachel's son. So his amazing wife, who he loves, who he will make all kinds of noise for, I love Rachel, Leah, you're just weird. Imagine living in that household. Imagine all of that in this particular toxic household. And here, Joseph is the favored son. But God does not show favoritism, yet he was showing favoritism. One commentator said, it's fair to say that no one in chapter 37 exhibits noble character, including Jacob, whose exaggerated favoritism aggravated the enmity that half-brothers exhibited. He was creating, as a father, a culture, a household of fear, competition, rivalry, hatred, and murder. 
As parents, we need to not show favoritism. As parents, we need to love our children equally. We all have some children that do dingbat things often. We can say, oh, man, that one is always a dingbat. And that might be true, but that doesn't mean that you love the dingbat any less. Because the other person who's not being an outward dingbat is probably being a secret dingbat, and you don't even know it. And then they get out of the house, and you're like, what did you do? I thought you were the best one ever, and you're the worst. That's not how we're to treat our children, okay? We don't show favoritism. But this coat, it wasn't just an elaborate gift. This was not just a gift that he was like, hey, when you go out in public, everyone's going to know that you're my favorite son. No, it was even more compounded than that. This coat that he put on him was telling Joseph and his brothers that, Joseph, you're no longer the labor, you're management. This was a coat that signified him being entrusted with leadership of the family. One commentator named John Walton gives it into perspective. He says, Joseph is now management, not labor. This jacket, you don't go and, and, and hang out with dirty, smelly sheep with this jacket on. Your dad just dropped a big amount of money on this jacket. You're not going to go and get sheep poop all over it. You're going to go and watch your brothers deal with the poop, and you're going to tell them what to do. Now, Joseph is the youngest one at this point. His other brother is really, really a baby and has no, no ability to lead or do anything. Joseph is the youngest to all of these brothers to be at the age of leadership. Joseph the tattletale, Joseph the one who was telling them what to do now. Could you imagine the bitterness and the anger and the frustration of Reuben the oldest who looks at his young brother and is like, this guy is a fool. He doesn't even know how to shepherd sheep. He doesn't even know how to put in a hard day's work. He's got really soft hands. My hands have calluses because I've worked for my father so much. I love how uh, my friend Matt, he says that, you know, when I go, me, me, Marv, when I go do some labor work, laborious work, he's like, your pastor hands are showing. Because <laughs> I type a lot, I don't pick up wood and, you know, put all that stuff together. But anyways, his pastor hands were showing, his management hands were showing, and his brothers were completely offended by this overt favoritism and putting them below their younger brother. Now, we talked about a culture of favoritism throughout the entire family, but this isn't just with our children. It's not just with the people that we live with. But favoritism, no matter the context, births bitterness, fear, and rivalry. Bitterness, fear, and rivalry are the children of favoritism. Imagine, you know, when you go into a conversation with your kids, they're like, man, that kid is the teacher's pet. Have you, ever, have you ever said that, right? Man, the teacher just loves, that kid can do anything. He hit me with a spit wad yesterday, and I told, and it was like, it was my fault. Or you work in a position, you have a job, and you know that there is a favorite of the manager, because the manager just keeps raising that person up and up and up, and you're like, man, that person has done nothing in this, in this, in this, entire, this entire job, and they're just weak and lazy and a bum, but they keep getting elevated for no reason in this company, right? We've all experienced that. 
And you see the type of environment that it creates. And it creates a serious act of bitterness on your part. Looking at the teacher's pet, like, I don't want to hang out with that person. I don't want to hang out with that person at work who keeps getting raises above me and keeps getting all these different positions above me. That's not fair. I don't want to be with that person. And it creates something within you that begins to hate that student or that coworker. His brothers, after this coat of many colors, it says, they hated him and could not speak respectfully to him. Whenever Joseph would show up, they couldn't even muster any aspect of respect. They couldn't do it. They hated him even more and more and more. You and I, we have the ability to create cultures of favoritism or we can kill cultures of favoritism in our homes, in our jobs, wherever it is. You and I need to be people who kill cultures of favoritism because it only produces a negative culture. The third way that we can avoid a pitfall in the life of Joseph is that we are to reject arrogance. Reject the allure and attitude of arrogance. Let's continue the story, Genesis 37, 5 through 10. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bound down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now, we know that this is a, uh, two dreams that are from the Lord. We know that they're from the Lord because they do, in fact, happen. When we get to the end of Joseph's story, we will see that aspect. But just because he had a dream from the Lord didn't mean he had to share it. This is where he messes up big time. And I don't think he did it on accident. Because here we have seen that he is purposefully the favorite. He is purposefully now already over his brothers in management. So he has this dream and he's like, hey guys, not only does dad think I'm the best, but the big guy thinks I'm the best. <laughs> you guys are bums for life. God's on my side. I mean, really? That's essentially what he's saying. And he, he has this dream where they're bowing down to his sheaves, and that wasn't enough. He had to share the second dream where it was actually him that was being bowed down, down to, as if his brothers didn't get it the first time, right? As if they didn't understand the first dream. He's like, well, let me tell you, it's not just your sheaves that are bowing down. It's the stars, the moon, space bows down to me. I mean... Really? If somebody had that dream, you'd be like, man, stop talking to me about that. That's weird. Like, what, what is wrong with you? Hold that in your heart. Don't share that with the world. 
But Joseph had to tell it. He had to share what was going on because he was walking in arrogance. Favoritism in his life created an attitude of arrogance. And you and I in our lives, we are to release and resist and push away the allure of arrogance. It doesn't matter how good you are. You're not better than anyone. I am no better than anyone in this room at anything in life. We all come to the Lord on an equal level. The, the ground is equal at the cross. It is level. It is not elevated. It is not any, any way different. We all come to the cross broken, messed up sinners in need of a Savior. It doesn't matter how much money you're making or what aspect of management you're in. It doesn't matter if you're working at McDonald's or a, a 500 company. It does not matter. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. We need to reject this aspect of pride. Now, Joseph, he's really tone deaf because after he shares his first dream, it says that they hated him even more. But then he's like, ah, <laughs> this, one will, this one will get them. And he shares it. And they hated him even more, birthing this sense of murder. The word hate in Hebrew is sane, and it means hate, enemy, scorn, or decrease in status. Not only do they now hate their brother, Joseph is their enemy. He is someone that they now must eliminate from their lives. Arrogance sows seeds of bitterness and reinforces jealousy and hate. You and I, we too can walk in pride. You and I can have this sense that we are better than. I don't sin as much as that person, so I'm better. Or I don't say bad words like that person, so I'm better. I don't smoke or drink or go with girls who do, and I'm better. But we're not. We can't walk in this aspect of pride. No showboating tactics have ever helped make friends. Have you ever walked into a room and someone's like, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best, and everyone's like, I want to be your friend. You're so good. No, it never really developed true friendship. No prideful talk about oneself has ever engendered deeper friendships with others. In fact, it probably made them like really angry, and they might pretend to attach themselves to that person because they're cool, but <laughs> there's not a real sense of love for that person. Like, just stop talking. Hi. Pride does not create any relationship. Paul, speaking of this in Romans 12, 3, says, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's right from Scripture. This is not just a lesson that his life shows us. This is all throughout Scripture telling us how we are to walk and live in our lives and avoiding this pitfall. Pride destroys community and creates a culture of competition. It's not helpful. It's not good. It doesn't engender relationships to go deeper. It creates a culture and a community of competition. Because if all of a sudden I'm telling you I'm better than you, you're going to want to be better than me so that you could rub it in my face like, you ran that fast, but I ran faster. You got an A, but I got an A+. Plus. 
right? My, my SAT scores were like, and yours were like, <laughs> we have this sense of competition. And it happens in our families. It happens in our jobs. It happens in our sports. It happens all over the place. Pride can often feed on favoritism, but it doesn't always need that to fuel and to thrive. Here we see that the seeds of favoritism were sown in Joseph's life, and he began to walk in the arrogance with which his father was grooming him into. You and I as parents, we have a responsibility to love our children and to train our children not to create these arrogant monsters, because we have a way to do that. One of the reasons why bullying is so big is because parents ignore their children's faults. One of the reasons why bullying is so big is because we just say, oh, you're the best ever. You could never do anything wrong. We've got to kill this, this culture of bullying. I don't know if you know, but it's gotten really bad in our area. So much so that Indiana Area School District is developing what they're calling a climate uh, sub, subcommittee to figure out how to change the climate of the culture of bullying in our community. I put my name in, hopefully I'll get voted in. I don't know, maybe I won't, because I'm a pastor, that might not work out. But it is so serious right now. And where does it begin? Parents, it's on us. It begins with us. That doesn't mean that we have to constantly say all the negative things about our kids, but we need to let them know that they're not perfect, they're not the best, that we're all the same. That they can't look down upon other people. It's an important aspect that you and I as parents, we need to help create a right-minded child that they can see themselves aright. Okay, soapbox over. The fourth way you and I can avoid the pitfalls of Joseph's youth is by allowing the Spirit to destroy comparison and jealousy in your heart. Allow the Spirit to destroy comparison and jealousy in your heart. Genesis 37, 11, and then 27 and 28 says this. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now, if you were to see what was sandwiched in between that, Reuben wanted to kill Joseph. Reuben was ready to murder his brother, slaughter him, and throw him into a, a hole and cover it up. That was Reuben's solution. Thankfully, Judah was a little bit more level-headed, and he tried to get them to change their mind from murder to selling him as a slave. But they still pretended as if Joseph had died. Right? Their goal was to, to just sever all ties with their father. They sold him into, to the Israelites into slavery. He eventually landed in Egypt, and we'll talk about that next week. But their goal was to just get rid of him. Because their jealousy and their comparison and Joseph's arrogance created a hatred so deep that they began to have murder in their hearts and began to act upon that murder. John warns believers that if we hate one another, we are murderers. 
If you were to open up the book to 1 John 3.15, man, that's a serious thing. You and I have really got to examine our hearts and ask, do I hate anyone? Because if there's a deep-rooted hate within you for someone, no matter if they're a believer or an unbeliever, there's murder in your heart. I don't know if you've known, but we have a huge culture of hatred going on in our world today. You just have to hop onto any social media for five seconds, and you'll see hate over and over and over again. As believers, we are to live and walk differently. We will step into a pitfall that Joseph fell into if we don't allow the Spirit to deal with those issues in our lives. Chuck Swindoll, he wrote a book on the life of Joseph, which I'll quote from time to time. He said this, No response is crueler than jealousy. Solomon was right when he said, Jealousy is cru as cruel as the grave in Song of Solomon 8.6. Jealousy, if allowed to grow and fester, leads to devastating consequences. At some point, it will manifest itself in detrimental ways. Are you walking in jealousy and hatred? It will eventually manifest itself in detrimental ways. As believers, we are not to compare ourselves to others, even if others are trying to compare themselves to us. Joseph constantly was throwing it in their face by tattletaling and talking about his dreams. Their father was constantly throwing it in their face that he, that he had a favorite and it wasn't them. They didn't have to feed off of that, but these brothers... They did. They were comparing themselves to Joseph and finding themselves wanting and lacking. You know, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how powerful you are, there's always going to be someone wealthier and more powerful than you. And if you consistently compare yourself to others, you will find yourself in a pit of depression, anger, bitterness, jealousy, hatred. That's why President Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. Now, I've quoted that several times because it is something that I have to continually put into my mind, right? Because it's easy to compare. Wow, you know, I'm a pastor of, of this size of church. And look, there's a church of 2,000 down the street. What am I doing wrong? And there's this comparison. But we're not to do that. Comparison is the thief of joy. We are called to be content where we are with what God has given to us. We could see any aspect of our lives. Wow, their kids really behave in church. What's wrong with me? Nothing. Wow, their dog doesn't bite people. What's wrong with me? Wow, that person just keeps getting elevated and elevated and elevated. What, what's wrong with me? Don't allow the enemy to steal your joy and your contentment because you're walking in jealousy and hatred. Comparison truly is the thief of joy. None of Joseph's brothers were happy in their life. Not even after Joseph left. We still see some stories of depression, anger, frustration, sin throughout their life because they still weren't happy. They were constantly looking back and comparing themselves. And then Benjamin came up and was old enough and became the favorite of Jacob again. This was a difficult, toxic environment to live in. Joseph's brothers did not have to eat the food of bitterness, jealousy, and comparison, but they did. I think the best way for you and I to apply this aspect of avoiding this pitfall 
is exactly what Paul says in Romans 12.10. Love one another, outdo one another in showing honor. I love this because Paul is saying the only competition that we are to have in this world is to how much we can honor one another. We go out in the public and I honored Tim so great. And then he comes up and he's like, I'm going to honor you. Ha, yeah. Like, could you imagine if like that was our competition? Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor that guy so big and so awesome that everyone just sees the honor that he has, the greatness that he has because I love him so much. Man, that would be a great competition to have. Who can honor who the most? Because even then, you're not going to be like, huh, I honored you more. Because you're trying to give them more honor anyways. Wow, they did honor me better than I honored them. <laughs> right? I mean, it just creates an environment of love. Love one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't allow hate to consume you, but consume hate with love. Consume hate with love. And when we love one another and we love the world, they will see Jesus in your life. They will see the Christ that you proclaim with your mouth through your life. You and I can avoid the pitfalls of Joseph's youth. Man, may we do it. May we allow the Holy Spirit of God to fill us with the capacity to love in a way that is otherworldly, to not show favoritism, to not walk in arrogance, to not defame others, and to not walk in jealousy, comparison, and hatred. May we embrace that in our world today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when we open up the scriptures, no matter where we find ourselves, we can learn lessons for our lives. That we can apply the truths of scripture to our lives and become more and more and more like you. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will seal the truth of these applications in our lives and that we will walk avoiding the pitfalls that Joseph fell into in his youth. Maybe we, may we be different in this way. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.